0: Take your Bibles, if you would, with me today and turn again to 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy 4, verse 1, says, I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Recall last time we were together, we walked through various thoughts and principles regarding the nature of judgment, and specifically the nature of judgment and the believer. We established that there is a day of judgment for the works of men, regardless of whether or not we are born again. We considered, just briefly, the certain nature of that day of judgment, the the certainty of promises, of reward and loss, the certainty uh, of of the teaching in regard to faith, and that we ought to desire these rewards with all of our heart, the clarity of the scriptures, regarding what secures for us the spiritual reward and what would secure for us spiritual loss. But we also talked about the lack of clarity as it relates to these rewards and what they will be, recognizing that this is a part of the call to faith itself, that we trust our Heavenly Father when he tells us that these rewards will be great and that they'll far surpass anything that we could have as far as expectations, If only we will walk by faith and not by sight. As I was preaching last week, however, there was a weight upon me to answer a couple of questions that I did not speak to last week, that I had not intended to, questions that bubbled up in my mind that I felt I needed to address. And so these questions exist as a part of last week's topic, I did not intend a second week on this topic, to that end, this message might feel a little bit imbalanced. Typically what happens is I think through everything that I want to present within a topic, and then I organize that presentation. And if there's going to be two weeks, then I organize the sermon in such a way so that there's a nice, clear break point, there's nice, clear application, something we can take away from each one. And I hope you'll you'll still recognize some of that opportunity today, but things will not be quite as well organized because this is more of an addendum than it is an actual two-parter to that end I, I hope that you'll bear with me in this but but as this sermon is almost more of this addendum answering questions which uh, went into my mind and, and hopefully I'll be answering if, if anyone had these questions in your own heart um, though it may not seem as natural or as organized in that sense it is still very important and this for two reasons First, um, remember we talked a little bit last time about, right at the beginning, about the nature of the false doctrines that have grown up surrounding the lack of clarity in regard to rewards. We talked about uh, those that believe that you can lose your salvation, and specifically because they see these elements of, of reward and of loss, and they're trying to contemplate, how can it be that there can be any shame or sorrow? How, how can it be that there, there's any motivation unto righteousness if I've already been saved? And so there's that lack of clarity compels them to say, well, then you must be able to lose something great. And so they interpret that great loss as a loss of your eternal security. And that's not true. And then, of course, we talked about the concept of purgatory. The idea that in a desire to reflect the nature of that judgment, the nature of God's judgment being reflected as burning, there's been this extra layer added, generally speaking, if if nowhere else, to the the Catholic theology of a place where your unrighteousness is burned off, fitting you for eternity. And while there's a logical um, idea within that that might have some measure of sense as it relates to the concepts of reward and loss. It's certainly not doctrine, right? It's not found in the Bible itself. And so we can put it under speculation, we can put it under uh, some sort of imagination, but we certainly can't put it under teaching and we certainly can't erect an entire theology around it. And then the second reason why this is very important is in regard to those who came to faith later in life. This was the really important one that compelled me to want to write another sermon. There are those among us who as believers have a deep history in their past prior to their salvation of tremendous sin. And as I preached last week, perhaps some of you felt this measure of fear or perhaps frustration, maybe even despair, which the gospel is intended to take away, thinking that though you have been saved from this eternity in the lake of fire, yet you'll still have to give an account for those things. And that's not what I intended to convey. That's not what the Bible conveys. And I particularly want to clarify that this morning. That'll be the second half of our sermon. And the first thing that I want to cover, we're going to cover this in two parts. The first element will be about the unbeliever in judgment. I want to clarify some things as it relates to the unbeliever. We talked about the believer. We talked about reward and loss. I want to clarify some concepts regarding the unbeliever in judgment. Some will be clear. Some will be ambiguous. And then after that, we'll step into if you are a believer and you've been saved later in life and there were, there were, there were uh, tremendous days of evil and debauchery f- f- uh, prior to, to you being born again, What does it mean for you? What does the day of judgment mean for you? What are the the works that, that will be presented on that day? Is the Lord truly going to drudge up those things that were done before you were in Christ? We'll answer those questions together. So one of the primary springboards for this study has been Paul's statement in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10 that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. This is reiterated in Romans chapter 14 verse 10. And we recognize that there's coming a day of reckoning in which we will give an account of the things which we have done, the things of faith unto eternal reward, the things not in faith unto eternal loss. And this will be a fearful day for all. For some it will be a day of great sorrow and loss. By God's grace for many, it will be a day of great reward and of great joy. And perhaps as we were talking about it, some questions entered your mind. Pastor, it makes sense that there will be a day of judgment unto rewards. And that there will be rewards and suffering of loss independent of salvation. And though we don't know what these rewards are, they matter and there's some ambiguity about how it works. But this makes sense. And I hope it does. I hope it did. I try to make sense. (laughs) But what about the unbeliever? Does it work the same way for them? How does unbelieving judgment work? And I want to help us think through some of this today. I want to begin with the historical differentiation in the church between the day of judgment for believers and the day of judgment for the unbelievers. In Romans chapter 14 and 2 Corinthians 5, as Paul speaks about judgment for the believers, the place of judgment is called the judgment seat of Christ. In our circles, we often, you might read the Bema seat or the Bema judgments, if you've heard that idea before of the Bema seat. The church typically has differentiated this judgment from the judgment that unbelievers will face, who will stand before what Revelation 20 describes as a great judgment white throne. Now the only time where we see this concept of a great white throne is speaking in Revelation 20 which under a typical orthodox interpretation of end times events happens only uh, after believers have already been judged. Believers have already received our resurrected bodies and so we're only dealing with unbelievers. The sea giving up its dead, death and hell giving up its dead and them standing before what's called the, the, the great white throne of judgment. And to that end, we have kind of characteristically in our circles uh, separated these judgments, recognizing that the judgment of believers will be before Christ, who is both their judge and their advocate. Kind of a good way to have it, right? Imagine if your judge was also your lawyer. Uh, That would go pretty well for you. And the judgment of the dead, the unbelievers, who would stand before the Father, as it were, and this judgment would be before God as the dead, small and great stand before God. And I have no problem with this differentiation. In fact, in Revelation, I used it myself. I'm comfortable with it as a general rule, but it doesn't paint the clearest picture and the separation between them in our minds might be stronger than at least the Bible gives us contextual freedom to expect. That doesn't mean it's not true. But remember, I just mentioned a few moments ago that we take things in the Bible and we see hints of things, and then sometimes we we will take those and we'll expand upon them, and that's perfectly fine. We can take various elements of the scriptures, what they teach, and use them and, and expand them in the vein or in the spirit of them, but we need to be careful to differentiate what is our expansion of the concept and what the Bible actually teaches, right? We need to be careful because the Word of God is authoritatively true our surmisings and and, and, uh, thoughts as it relates to the implications of the Word of God, though they might be true, might also not be true or might not paint an entire picture. There are several Bible teachings that at least challenge, if not undermine, the idea that these two judgments are very different one from another. First, the idea that the believers will stand before the judgment seat of Christ, Jesus as judge and advocate, But the unbeliever will stand before the great judge, the Father, who will have judgment without mercy. But Jesus said this in John chapter 5, beginning in verse 22. He said, For the Father judgeth no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son, that all men should honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He that honoreth not the Son honoreth not the Father which hath sent him. Verily verily I say unto you he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation but is passed from death unto life verily verily I say unto you the hour is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the son of god and they that hear shall live for as the father hath life in himself so he hath given the son to the son uh, so hath he given to the son excuse me to have life in himself And hath given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. So Jesus states in this passage, not only that the Father judges no man, because he has committed all judgment unto the Son, but also, here in verse 27, that not only has the Father committed unto the Son judgment, but has also committed unto the Son the authority to execute that judgment. This is one of many reasons why I teach about the nature of Jesus' sacrifice the way that I do. For those of you that are familiar with the uniqueness of how I speak of Jesus's sacrifice as it relates to the sin of mankind. I believe that the sin of every man throughout eternity regardless of their salvation or damnation was paid for on the cross. And that the standard by which man sees perdition is not his personal sins against the Father, but rather whether or not he has believed on the name of the only begotten Son of God so that the only sin for which a person will spend eternity separated from God in that place of conscious torment called the lake of fire is the sin of refusing to believe upon the name of Jesus Christ because Jesus has already borne the sins of mankind on the cross. Now if one is not careful with this nuance it becomes universalism, right? Well if Jesus has forgiven the sins of all men then all men are going to make it to heaven. Wrong. Because In order to get to heaven you must believe on the name of the only begotten Son of God. Jesus said in John 14 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. All roads do not lead to God. All religions do not lead to God. They lead to a God. They lead to the God of this world. Only one path leads to the Father and that is through the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Jesus said it himself. The gospel of Jesus Christ is quite exclusive. Now, if we were to give the testimonies of how we have all come to Christ, we'll find that the roads that lead to the gospel are many. Some have been led to the gospel through great joy, others through great sorrow. Some have been led to the gospel uh, after years of wandering, others have been led uh, to the gospel through the obvious confirmation of the truth in the lives of their parents, in the lives of their siblings, in the lives of, of their family. But one way or another, if you have found the gospel, if you, have, if you have found life, you have found it through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because that is the only way to life according to the word of God. So when we are confronted with these things, we recognize the exclusivity of Jesus Christ We have to decide what we're going to do with Jesus Christ. There are many religions that believe Jesus was a good man, that he was a good prophet. But you have to deal with what Jesus called himself, which was God in flesh. You have to deal with what Jesus said he did, what he said he would do, and which the Bible testifies he did, which is die on the cross for our sins, be buried and rose again. That is the condition. It's not enough to believe he was a good man. It's not enough to believe he was a good prophet. It's not enough to believe he was a great teacher. You have to accept him for who he said he was. And that means that Jesus was either who he said he was or he was a raving lunatic. Only two options, right? When Jesus said that he would die and raise again, either he was crazy or he did it. And if he did it, then he's God. And if he didn't, then he was a lunatic. There's really no middle ground. He was not a good man and a great prophet if he did not rise from the dead and sit on the right hand of the, th- of the Father. He was a liar. He was a deceiver. But if he did raise from the dead, if he is at the right hand of the Father, then he is Lord of all, and he is God. And that's really the only two options when it comes to Jesus. So those religions that say he was a good man are religions that are very confused. Religions that would say he was a good prophet but nothing else. Religion that say he was just like, he was just another prophet in the vein of Abraham and Moses and Muhammad and, 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 and all of the prophets and the Buddha and such. Uh, those religions, the, the, those ideas, those theories are intrinsically confused because either Jesus was a liar or he is who he said he is. Which is God in flesh. So then this passage would lend us to believe that both the quick and the dead will stand before Jesus and be judged, okay? But what about the nature of that judgment? And this is what we've been ironing out, right? It's typically envisioned that judgment for the believer will consist of hearing the judge say, not guilty, and then we enter into heaven. And then the unbeliever will hear the words guilty and be cast into the lake of fire. Then we added this element of reward and loss to our time last week recognizing that we will give an account. And when we think of the unbeliever, we think, well, their punishment is for their sins. Hell is hot, the place of torment. Torment is torment. Sin will see torment. But we see the condition of condemnation is not their sins, per se, right, as I just mentioned, but rather the sin of unbelief. And then we find Jesus in Matthew 11. And this throws a really interesting layer into this whole consideration of judgment. A big old monkey wrench thrown into the simplicity of this whole thing. Jesus said this in Matthew 11, beginning in verse 20. Then began he to upbraid the cities where most of uh, of his mighty works were done, because they repented not. Woe unto thee, Chorazin! Woe unto thee, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And thou, Capernaum, which art exalted unto heaven, shall be brought down to hell. For if the mighty works which have been done in thee had been done in Sodom, Is that, um, my, my apologies, I just want to make sure. Yeah, okay. Had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say unto you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for thee. My apologies for, for, for the pause there. Notice what Jesus said here. Jesus upbraided the cities that had rejected his mighty works in that they repented not. And in reflecting unto them just how very hard their hearts were to the truth, he told them that if the works that he had done in their cities had been done in Tyre, in Sidon, and in Sodom, those cities would have repented in sackcloth and ashes. Now, let me just take a quick side note here. Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum were Jewish cities, Right? These were cities in which there was a a large contingency of religious Jewish people in the days of Christ. These people kept the law of Moses. They observed the Sabbaths and the feasts. They were externally extremely moral people. Contrast that with what the Bible presents of the Sodomites. This is where we get the term Sodomite from. These people were were perverse. They were morally debauched. They were so confused morally. They had such a backwards, uh, they they had lacked such moral compass that when the angels came and visited Lot in Sodom, they surrounded the house and demanded that these men be allowed to be, be forced out of the house so that they could rape them. They were so morally backward that law actually said, don't do this to my guests, but here, take my daughters and do with them what you will. And they said, no, we don't want that. And it says that from the young to the old in the city surrounded the house. This was a tremendously morally perverse city. And Jesus said that the hearts of and, Bethsaida, and Capernaum, these morally perverse, Upright religious cities were harder to the truth. Their hearts were more shut off to the truth than Sodom. Imagine that. We have people in churches all around this country living moral lives. Self-righteously moral lives. Judging those around them, thinking that God must appreciate their morality and integrity and sure that their good works have earned them some standing with God. But they have utterly rejected the gospel of grace they have utterly rejected the truth they stand in self-righteousness and close their ears to the call to humble themselves to love one another to seek those things which are above and to extend Jesus's analogy into this day there are people that are sitting in churches there are entire organizational churches that are farther away from God than any of those people draped in rainbow flags walking down the street proclaiming their pride at being sodomites today. Don't lose sight of that. Don't lose sight of that. You might well feel more darkness walking into the halls of some of these self-righteous moralizing churches than you would walking alongside those sodomites on pride day. And I'm not talking about those churches who have, who have been engulfed by moral ambiguity in the world. I'm not just talking about those churches, um, the, the, the Universalists and the Unitarian, the churches that are no different from the world. Theirs is the same darkness, right? I'm talking about those churches who hold a moral line, but who do so in such deep self-righteousness, such deep hypocrisy, such deep judgmentalism, that the light of Christ does not pierce the darkness. Of their own hearts. Is it any wonder then that children leave those moralizing communities, those, that, those communities of self-righteous moralizers, they walk into communities of perverse immorality and they feel no difference in kind. They feel no difference in kind. As a matter of fact, they might even feel a weight lifted when they step into that perverse community because that perverse community of compromisers might actually be less lost, less hard, and certainly less hypocritical than the self-righteous community of moralizers they've come from. And thus they feel a weight lifted of darkness, though it's still darkness. And let this be a reminder and a warning that Jesus spoke to these moral cities, these moral people, And he said, if I had done in Sodom what I did in your city, they would have gotten on their knees and repented in sackcloth and ashes. But you're not listening. You're not listening. You're hardened. That isn't my point, though. My point is the next phrase. It shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you, God said. What can that possibly mean? If the lake of fire is torment, how can torment be more tolerable for some than for others? But notice Jesus isn't talking about more tolerable in eternity. He's specifically said more tolerable in the day of judgment. Not the day when the book is opened and those that are not found written in the book of life are cast in the lake of fire. This is a binary day a day when those who have rejected Jesus will be separated from God forever on the basis of the fact that they've rejected the name of the only begotten Son of God. But Jesus says when the books are opened, on the day of judgment, and the dead, small and great, will be judged from those books. And just as we don't really know how that day of reward and loss will go for the believer, we don't really know how the day of judgment for the unbeliever relates to eternity. But once again, we do know this there seem to be gradations of judgment based upon the amount of light any singular believer has at their disposal. Now again, this has brought some to believe various elements as it relates to judgment, that, judgment will, that, that, that the lake of fire, uh, that there are levels to hell and, and um, that uh, again purgatory can play into that idea. Uh, it even goes back to Greek mythology and the, the, the nature of Hades, right? And, and Tartarus was particularly the, the, the damnation side of Hades, which Hades just meant death. And they had Elysium, right, which was that place of joy. And then they had Tartarus, which was that place of darkness. And that was the deepest depths of damnation. And, and all of this uh, has some shadow of this idea, What is this idea, this gradational idea of judgment? And you can see perhaps then why religions like the Catholic Church invented things such as purgatory. An attempt to reconcile the teachings about the day of judgment, about how it can be more tolerable for some than for others, conflating thus with how long purgatory would last, right? And and make no mistake. There isn't any support in the scriptures for for the doctrine of purgatory. I'm not trying to say there is. All I'm trying to give you is a reference point to understand where it came from. It's an invention attempting to explain something that the Bible leaves ambiguous. But be careful not to get on your high horse and to insist that these other religious sects are just making stuff up for no good reason. And this is kind of what can happen in our circles, right? that they had no good reason or no biblical motivation whatsoever and that thousands or millions of people have just gone along with it for no good reason either. It's it's a really comforting thought to look at somebody else's religious zeal and to say, well, that's not in the Bible, therefore you must have just made it up. It's just a fairy tale and you're crazy. But if we give them the credit that's due unto them, we have to understand that these church, that that these theologians in the church throughout time did not just pull this stuff out of thin air. Understand that. Whether we're talking about infant baptism, whether we're talking about the doctrine of purgatory, whether we're ta- any number of these things that we would look and we'd say, "I don't see it in the Bible," it's not in the Bible, so they must have just made it up. Well, they didn't just make it up; they took some various elements of, of differences in how they interpreted the Bible, and they drew out from those differences natural, logical, philosophical applications by which they came to conclusions and then they built around those conclusions doctrines. And we need to be careful that we don't do the same because we do this in our circle as well. We do this in our circles we, we can we can we can fall into this as it relates to our standards can't we? Building up the standards of how we dress. Building up the standards of what we watch or don't watch building up the standards of the Bible translation we've chosen, building up the standards of music. And we can take these things, which are natural applications of biblical ideas, and we build them into our lives, but then in order to defend them, we build around them actual doctrinal authority. And then we teach it as doctrine. And it can create confusion and then in the generations to come, they look back at our application of the church or our wing of Christianity, and they say, I don't see that in the Bible, just like we do to these other religious sects. And so help, God help us that these elements would help us to become more self-aware rather than just looking at the others who do things in a different way and things that we would naturally and, and strongly disagree with. And instead of just saying I disagree, let us use that as a cautionary tale to see where it is we might be doing the same thing. And search our own hearts to make sure that we are living in a manner that is right before the Lord. And so as we consider this idea, what are these gradations of judgment I can't necessarily answer that question for you in the same way I can't answer the rewards question. But I do want you to see that the distinctions between the judgment that we commonly call the Bema seat for believers and the white throne for unbelievers is not a doctrine with essential clarity. I'm not saying it's not true, I'm saying it lacks some essential clarity. And that both judgments, though unto very different outcomes, do share some similar attributes. Both seem to be presided over by Christ. Both seem to have gradations for the believer's rewards, for the unbeliever's judgment. How will it be more tolerable for Sodom than for Bethsaida? I don't know. I don't know what that means. I don't know how judgment can be more or less tolerable. I can't answer that question for you because the Bible doesn't answer it for us. But we do know this, that both give way to the eternal state. For the believer, that means eternal fellowship with God. For the unbeliever, it means eternal separation from God. And we know that for a fact. Now there's one more thing I want to address in our time together this morning. We find in Scripture that you and I will give an account for the things done in our body, whether good or bad, that we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, that each day we are in Christ, we are building upon the foundation of Jesus Christ either eternal rewards or that wood, hay, and stubble, eternal loss. The day of judgment will reveal these things by the fire of God's judgment. And the question I want to address, and this is truly the one that I think will minister to your heart more specifically today. What about the things we did before we, have ex- before we accepted Christ as our savior? Will those things factor into the day of judgment? And I have a couple of insights into this idea specifically. I don't really wanna spend my time on those. We'll address them as a minor point of support, not as a major point of clarity. But the major point of clarity that litters the pages of Scripture is simply this Will those things that have been done prior to your salvation, those evil works, will they be there on that day of judgment? I think no. And I think the Bible's quite clear about this. And we begin our thinking on this back in 2 Corinthians 5. It's kind of where we started. In 2 Corinthians 5, beginning in verse 12, the Bible says this, For we commend not ourselves again unto you, but give you occasion to glory on our behalf, that ye may have somewhat to answer them which glory in appearance and not in heart. For whether we be beside ourselves, it is to God, or whether we be sober, it is for your cause. For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge, that if one died for all, that would be Jesus, of course, then we're all dead. And that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Wherefore henceforth know we no man after the flesh, yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet now henceforth know we him no more. Therefore if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away, behold, all things are become new. And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us unto himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation. To wit, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, Be ye reconciled to God, for he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Now, I I wish I could just walk through this whole whole passage I could preach for a while on. There was a lot going on there that, that maybe you didn't understand. But the Bible teaches this in clarity, that the moment you accepted Christ as your Savior, if you have accepted Christ as your Savior, if you have gotten on his side, You go through a fundamental transformation. This doesn't mean you stop sinning. Anyone in here stop sinning? Anyone in here sinless? That's not my hand up, by the way. My hand's down too. It doesn't mean that all of your problems go away. My, uh, in Bible time this week, my children and I were singing, um, uh, I'm in right, out right, up right, down right. You ever sung that song with kids? I'm in, right, out, right, up, right, down, right, happy all the time. I'm in, right, out, right, up, right, down, right, happy all the time since Jesus Christ came in and cleansed my heart from sin. And we started talking through that, and I asked my children after we sang that, is that true? Are you in, right, out, right, up, right, down, right, happy all the time after you get saved? How many of you have been unhappy after you got saved? My hand's up too. There's a big difference between joy and happiness, right? Joy is a transcending peace and contentment above circumstances based upon the fact that your eternal salvation is secured and you have a Father who is in heaven who loves you regardless. Happiness is a condition based upon circumstances that comes and goes. So we changed it to I'm in right out right up right down right joyful all the time and that worked out pretty well for us. All your problems don't go away when you get saved all your sins don't go away when you get saved but you are given a new name aren't you your identity is fundamentally transferred from that of sin your definition of who you are being that definition of one who is in this world, under the prince of this world, living in sin, to a new name, endowed with a fundamentally different identity, Christ is now your identity. You are in Christ, clothed in his righteousness. Romans 6 tells us we are buried with Christ by baptism unto death and raised to walk in newness of life. Not speaking of water baptism, physical baptism, but Holy Spirit baptism at the moment of salvation. We talked about that Tuesday night, right? Going through the blood and the water. That would be uh, the reconciliation through Jesus Christ and then the Spirit of God, the baptism of the Spirit of God. And Paul says here that you are made a new creation, reconciled unto God by Jesus Christ. Our trespasses are not imputed unto us, but we have been given reconciliation. The word of reconciliation. Jesus spoke in John 3 about this concept of being born again. That which is born of flesh is flesh, Jesus said. That which is born of spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I say unto you, ye must be born again. A fundamental transformation takes place the moment when one commits his heart and his life to the finished work of Jesus Christ, whereby the spirit of the living God comes and indwells us, changes our identity, gives us the spirit of adoption, and fundamentally transforms us from the inside out. As we've already read today in John chapter 5, verse 24, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me, hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, notice this last bit, but is passed from death unto life. You pass from a death sentence into life. Now there's no room in these descriptions, even in the context of the day of judgment for our works, unto reward and loss, there is no room in this description for anything that we did prior to the moment that we placed that we were placed in Christ by grace through faith to factor in at all. Those things done in your body are wholly and utterly under the cross, wiped away, completely disassociated with you through your identity in Jesus Christ, ineffective under the condemnation of the devil, ineffective as a remnant or a skeleton or a ghost of a bygone era, If everything that I have done is dead in Christ, then it's gone, put under his cross. You, Christian, are not what you once were. Your identity, once defined by the sin that you carried, is now defined by Christ who carries you. The sin which you once bore is now borne by Christ on the cross. To that end, within the context of our understanding of salvation and the gospel, there is no scenario consistently where the nature of the new birth in Christ affords for those things which we did prior to the day of our salvation to factor into any sort of a consideration on the day of judgment. This is the definitive contrast between the believer and unbeliever on that day that every work of the flesh will pass before the unbeliever in judgment, but only those things done from the point of belief, when we began building upon that foundation, which is Jesus Christ, will be accounted for on the day of judgment. This is even tacitly acknowledged in Paul's teaching there in 1 Corinthians, is it not? Other foundation can no man lay, but that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. If any man build upon that foundation, he is speaking only of the things that we are, we are building upon the foundation of Jesus Christ. He doesn't speak about what lies under that foundation. He doesn't speak about all the dead bones that are that are buried underneath the foundation of Jesus Christ. Once that foundation was laid Paul speaks in the context of that which is built upon it. That will be what is reckoned on the day of judgment. And we do have some passing evidence for this idea more specifically in Scripture. Paul spoke in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. He said, And I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who hath enabled me for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious. But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. Paul states that though he had before been in his state as a Pharisee, wholly blasphemous, yet because he had done these things in his state of unbelief, he obtained mercy and so found himself now being counted among the faithful and being put into the ministry. In a much more difficult passage, you you see the context there, Paul says, "I, I am a minister and I am counted faithful to be a minister because the things that I had did that would disqualify me for ministry were done before my belief. And that is all accounted as unto mercy. There's a much more difficult passage to understand. I'm not going to expound upon it today, but it's in Hebrews, so we'll get to it. Tonight we're starting Hebrews. We'll get to it eventually. We have a shadow of this idea in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 and 27. Paul writes, for if we sin willfully, after that, we have received the knowledge of the truth. There remaineth no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation, which shall devour the adversaries. Again, we'll contextualize this passage when we get there in our evening service. But Paul seems to set a division, does he not, between those things done prior to receiving the knowledge of the truth, resting entirely upon the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross, and those things done after receiving the knowledge of the truth in those Things which we are building for that day of judgment. When the judgment of God, the fiery judgment of God, will fall upon our works and burn them up. Burn up the chaff. The gold, silver, and precious stones will remain. And this is consistent with what we have understood about the nature of the new birth and the nature of judgment. So Paul warns here after you received the knowledge of the truth, if you sin willfully, there is no more sacrifice for sins. He's not saying that, that Jesus didn't die for those sins. What he's saying is, it's no longer under that mercy of, of ignorance. And now it is being built unto the day of judgment. That the sins that I commit, ha- having already received the knowledge of the truth, are built upon that foundation of Jesus Christ as wood, hay, and stubble. And they will be accounted for on the day of judgment. The things that are prior to Jesus, The sacrifice of sins will wipe that slate clean when one accepts Jesus Christ. I believe that that's what's being said here. I think we have a a fair amount of anecdotal evidence being built upon the clarity of Scripture as it relates to the new life in Christ at the moment of salvation. Now, if this is true, that the metaphorical slate is wiped clean at the moment of salvation, this would mean that those saved soon before they die would have less to account for, right? You start to say, now wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. If everything that I do before the new birth is not accounted for on the day of judgment, then maybe the best strategy would be accept Christ right before I pass, right? So I don't have to deal with that. Those saved early in life have more to account for on the Day of Judgment because they're building up more stuff on the foundation of Jesus Christ. Well, that is true, but that's not the whole story, right? Because remember last week's message. Those saved soon before they die will have no time to earn reward. They're, also bui- they're not just not building wood, hay, and stubble. They're also not building gold, silver, and precious stones. And if those rewards mean as much as the Bible indicates they mean, that we don't know what that means, then there's a definitive advantage, a significantly greater advantage for one who has been saved for a long time and has had the opportunity to build gold, silver, and precious stones than one who has been saved for a short time before their passing and had no ability to build wood hay and stubble. Does that make sense? Of those two, rewards matter more and lack of judgment. And the other advantage is this. It's up to me which one gets built, right? If I don't want the wood hay and stubble, it's up to me. The person who accepts Christ just before he dies has no say in the matter. In this light as typical of our applica- uh, as a type of application today, I'd like to exhort you unto a certain end. Again, this message is a little bit scattered because I'm kind of patchwork fixing some things that, that came up last week. But here in Hebrews chapter 10, we just saw this idea, and I'd like to continue in Hebrews 10, a few verses past this, to draw out a measure of application today. Beginning in verse 35, Paul writes this, cast not away therefore your confidence, which hath great recompense of reward. For ye have need of patience, that after ye have done the will of God, ye might receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he that shall come will come, and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith, but if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. But we are not of them who draw back under perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. I hope today has added a measure of at least academic clarity surrounding some of these concepts concerning judgment. I hope those who perhaps struggled last week with the idea of standing in judgment for their works, for the things that they did before being saved, have received a, a blessed release recognizing that I do not believe, and I think the, the Bible is clear enough for us to say fairly definitively that you will not answer for those things done prior to your salvation but once again the call is this don't cast away your confidence unto reward don't yield faithfulness the promise is great Christian and if we consider all of these little sidelights that I've hit on today trying to answer Questions that might be in your mind, if don't let any of these things distract you from that call, Christian Jesus is coming again. And if current events are any indication, it's very possibly soon. And as Jesus said in Revelation 12, verse 22 And behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me to give every man according to his. As his works shall be let me read that again and behold I come quickly and my reward is with me to give every man according as his work shall be and this is every reason for you and I to get up every day with a joyful determination to spend every moment seeking that reward and not the loss of those who draw back again when we get there we'll get there this idea of drawing back into perdition, them that believe to the saving of the soul, this is not talking about being born again. This is talking about that day of judgment. Don't be as those who draw back. Let us confidently say, as Paul says here, but we are not of them who draw back. But let us instead be faithful. Let us instead Exercise that patience that after we have done the will of God, we might receive the promise. And may God help us to be a body of believers who are living daily, moment by moment, and earnestly for the recompense of that reward. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota.